Good morning, everyone. That, uh, the reading is so good, you almost just want to let that be the sermon. Um, but anyway, you've got me. Um, it's good to see you all. It's, uh, I hope you've all had a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Uh, we were fortunate for the first time in many years to have my extended family from the States with us. For a while, there were 14 people sleeping in our house, and it was actually great. So it was a, it was a real Christmas miracle. Why is that funny? Um, one thing my family were keen to do here was to hear the King's College uh, choir sing the Lessons and Carols service on Christmas Eve. However, their um, intrepid hosts failed to realize that you had to sign up online on the 5th of December or something, so this was off the table. So on Christmas Eve, we went instead to Peterborough Cathedral, where they were also having a Lessons and Carols service, and, um, and it was very wonderful. So we piled in, and it was foggy, and it was really beautiful. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but uh, what I was most immediately struck by sitting in this amazing building was this giant red and gold crucifix that hangs in the middle of the nave of the cathedral. Normally, I'm not that big a fan of modern art in the cathedrals. I I don't really pay attention, but this one really struck me, maybe partly because I was preaching on this passage, but... So here is Christ crucified, larger than life, made of body. He's sort of emaciated, but and sad and, and, and sort of, it's very beautiful. Um, and, it's, and I was sort of looking at it. And then what you see is, what was unusual though, is that underneath it there was an inscription in Latin, in all caps, which I'd never come across before. Stat crux dum volvitur orbis. How's your Latin? Um, this phrase, uh, which apparently is the motto of the Carthusian monastic order, I didn't know that, is this in English. The cross stands while the world turns, or the cross stands firm while the world turns. I find this phrase enormously powerful. It speaks to the centrality of the image of the cross at the heart of the Christian faith, and it gives voice in very simple terms to one of the deepest of all Christian truths, which is that the cross of Jesus stands in some sense not just at the center of our faith, but at the center of reality. It means that uh, if we want to know what God, the creator of the universe, is like, if we want to know how God works in the world, then first and last, we need to look to the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a cross in a small province of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Now, as Stuart has said, we're going to be talking about the cross over the next few weeks, uh, about the salvation that God has won for us on the cross, about how it was on the cross that God defeated the great enemies of sin death and evil, about how God's infinite love for us is expressed um, so perfectly and completely on the cross. But today our topic is not yet those things. It's what Paul is talking about here. I want to talk about two aspects of the cross in particular. First, what the cross says about how God sees the world, which is so different than how human beings usually see the world. And second, I want to talk about how the cross reveals to us something deeply, something deeply important about how God actually works in our lives. It's a pattern of operation in our lives that the cross represents and shows us. So the passage today is this very famous and wonderful one from 1 Corinthians. And here Paul is telling us about what he calls the message of the cross. What is the message of the cross? In this passage, in this place, I think what he especially wants to get across about this message is about how the cross confounds our human wisdom about things 
and teaches us a very different way of seeing the world. Let me read just some of those verses again so they're fresh in our minds. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. These might be words you know very well and feel that you understand, but I think it's worth kind of, let's, let's spell out why is the message of the cross actually foolishness? Why does Paul assume that this message is somehow going to be perceived as bizarre or counterintuitive? Let me spell it out as clearly as I, as I know how. So Christians preach that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish carpenter born on the fringes of the Roman Empire a little over 2,000 years ago, was in fact the living God-made flesh. The God who created the moon and the stars became a human child with a human body. This Jesus then began a ministry of preaching and started a new religious movement within Judaism. At the climax of his ministry, he came to be seen as a threat by authorities in Jerusalem. He was then arrested, tried, and executed as a common criminal. The method of execution was crucifixion on a hill outside Jerusalem, being nailed to two pieces of wood and left hanging until he either suffocated or died of exposure. Do you see the almost inconceivable contrast here? There are many ways to imagine the coming of God into the world, the creator God into the world. Actually, a lot of our images of the second coming, of, of the last judgment, maybe are like this. Coming on the clouds of heaven, coming with trumpets and hosts of angels, God entering the world in grandeur. The dead are raised, the trumpets sound, the very trees and rocks bow down. So it's weird that when God came into the world, that was not in the first instance what happened or what it looked like. His ministry, I mean, who would have anticipated the outcome here? His ministry ends not in glorious success, at least as it seems, but in what seems to be total failure. The most powerful entity in the universe confronts petty local magistrates and loses. The author and source of all life dies brutally. The one who was meant to save seems to be the one who needs saving. So just look for a minute, not with sort of 2,000 years of Christian eyes, but with other eyes. Who would follow a God whose enemies have no trouble overcoming him? How powerful can he really be? His message of love for sinners, the imminent coming of his kingdom, would seem hollow and weak. Look at where it led him. Do you support a politician who can't win the first local election? If you're in a war, do you want to be defended by the army that loses its very first battle disastrously? Wouldn't you want to have people on your side if you're trying to change the world, people who are powerful and respected and talented and canny and successful? So you see what Paul means when he talks about how the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the wise and weakness in the eyes of the powerful. I saw a remarkable kind of very real life uh, example of this in a recent article in the New York Times just before Christmas. It was on um, the very terrible persecution of Christians in India by, uh, primarily by the Hindu majority uh, and how the government is sort of turning a blind eye to this. So asked about why the government seems to be turning a blind eye uh, to the terrible treatment of Christians there, a government spokesman said this in the New York Times on the 23rd of December, 2021. If somebody wants to convert, i.e. to Christianity, no problem. But why is it that only the most illiterate and poor convert? Can you tell me that someone who cannot even write the J of Jesus begins to believe in it 
How so? Now, I think what he was implying is that there's some kind of trickery going on, that people are being deceived. But reading it, and, and for him, this then is a mark of Christianity's implausibility, uh, its weakness. But reading it with the eyes of 1 Corinthians, we see a very different story. God's way of working is not to seek out the educated, the rich, but the poor and the forgotten, the defenseless and the voiceless. That's happening right now there in a very visceral way. As Paul reminds the Corinthians themselves, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And you're a pretty sorry lot, Corinthians. Uh, Holy Trinity. Um, so the church that ministers under the sign of the crucified one will always be at its heart, or at least should be, a league of the, of the poor and the weak and the guilty, a band of those whom the world doesn't expect very much from. That is part of the message of the cross. Friedrich Nietzsche, a very perceptive, if also hostile, observer of Christianity, called Christianity the great slave revolt in, uh, in morality. Basically said that it was, it was a trick where the, the, the weak persuaded the strong that weakness is good, that the humble persuaded the powerful that uh, it's better to be humble. And it was a great trick. He was right about the reversal. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 1. But he was wrong uh, about what it means. To us, to those who are, uh, who are perishing, it is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is, the, it is the revelation of the deepest heart of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. So if you want to know what's most distinctive, I think, about, I mean, lots of things I don't know, but increasingly over, the, over my lifetime, I've spent a lot of time studying Christianity at this point, what I find so distinctive is in relation to other philosophies, other religions, um, other outlooks on life, is what you see when you look at the cross. On the cross, we learn that God is a God who works through weakness and not strength, as Paul also says very explicitly in 2 Corinthians. On the cross, we learn that God's deepest nature is revealed in his love for the undeserving and for those whom the world overlooks. This is a paradoxical idea, and it can look like foolishness. But I myself think it's just about the most beautiful idea I have ever come across. And that's not just hyperbole. I'm pretty sure reflecting that I, mean, I can trace my decision to go into Christian theology as a, as a thing to do with my life to an encounter with this idea that I had when I was 14 uh, years old, so theology specifically. Uh, we were re- we were, uh, I was on a church trip. Uh, my dad was the vicar. I had to go. It was fine. Um, I wasn't expecting much. And um, the, we, but there was a worship song that we would sing. I've never heard it sung anywhere else since. And when I looked it up uh, online, it's still really good, except that it's completely cheesy and 80s and has these flutes. And it's, it's almost cringy, except that it's amazing. Um, so anyway, it's called uh, God's Own Fool by Michael Card. And it's basically a reading of this, um, of this chapter. And this is the, this thing just, I was just so struck, uh, sort of in my heart, but also in my head, uh, by this, by the chorus. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. Once you start to see that this, uh, the power of this message of the cross, uh, that's foolishness to the world, you start to realize it actually describes a pattern of God's work that you see everywhere uh, in the Bible and in our lives. So remember David's calling 
he was, uh, you know, the sons all get lined up, which one's going to be God's anointed. And um, he was, the, not only was it not the firstborn, which would be the normal thing in this kind of culture, it was the one who was so insignificant they forgot to even invite him. Uh, you know, that's just God's sort of way of doing things over and over again. Uh, in Jesus' own preaching, remember, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118, that is Christianity, a league of the stones the builders rejected. Um, and of course, that's him himself. We just had Christmas, God entering the world not in a palace, but in a dirty stable, not as a powerful angel, but as a helpless baby, this reversal of expectations. God's choice of an obscure part of an obscure Roman province to send his son to. If you remember Nathaniel in John's gospel says, when he's told that the Messiah has come, he's from Nazareth, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, really? Nazareth? Um, and the answer, of course, is yes, always Nazareth is the answer. God's chosen leaders of the church, uneducated fishermen. The first leader of the church, the same guy who denied Jesus three times the night before his death. Continually the confounding of expectations. God works through not the way we think in our worldly expectations. So this is God's sort of primary pattern of operation in the world, I think. This is the deep wisdom that God, uh, uh, that looks like foolishness. So I can sort of summarize what I've said uh, so far. The cross captures, I think, first, what is most distinctive and distinctively profound about Christianity, God's heart for the weak and the powerless, uh, and his, uh, for the broken and the sinful, the humble and the foolish. That's prioritization of, of that reverses values. Secondly, the cross reveals to us that God's method of operation in the world is through weakness, not strength, and through brokenness, not soundness. The pattern of God's work in our lives, we might say, is cruciform, is cross-shaped. So what does that mean for us today? I, mean, I just think it's so interesting. We can just talk about it all day, but uh, how, how does that actually apply more directly? Well, first, it means that the message of the cross, it calls us out where we're caught in worldly thinking. Whether we've been Christians all our lives or do not consider ourselves Christians at all, the message of the cross does not come naturally to us. Our natural way of thinking is always with the grain of the world. We value success and talent and money and beauty. We play the game in our careers in order to succeed, paying the gods of this world their due. We pay more attention to those whom the world respects and admires, uh, and less, and we ignore those whom the world deems insignificant. This pattern also infects our thinking about the church. We think of important Christian leaders uh, as ones who have the ear of powerful people or who have some kind of respect beyond the walls of the church. We think of strong ministries as ones with growing numbers and strong giving figures. But then we look to the cross. We go to Peterborough and see that emaciated gold Jesus uh, up in the middle. The cross stands while the world turns. We're reminded that there is another way and that as Christians we are called to think another way, not to calculate and plan and strategize. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's faith. It's not thinking how the world works. If any of you have seen the show Ted Lasso, I won't get too into it. It's a wonderful show, very heartwarming once you get past the language. Um, uh, and it's 
very moving, and it's basically a show, a secular show about this, the message of the cross in the sense that it's a whole bunch of people who have a whole bunch of expectations about what works in the world and how the world works, and then this guy who comes in. So it's an it's a, um, English Premier League football team. who They bring in an American football coach who hardly knows the rules of soccer to uh, coach, and he sort of comes across as this kindly Midwestern American uh, who's completely naive and out of it, and he's just going to get eaten alive. Um, and every character underestimates him because he seems foolish, he seems weak, he seems like just um, not even worth paying attention to other than to get rid of. Um, and slowly over the course of the show, turns out he knows exactly what's going on, he's, his wisdom is deeper than their wisdom, and, uh, and actually in, in a kind of secular sense, he, he's the, the, their lives all turn around. He's, he, he comes to minister to them. They say all these major, the, the big star of the club who's self-centered or the boss who's angry at her ex-husband, all these people, he comes and actually turns their lives around. So this thing they didn't expect, this person, Ted Lasso, um, is actually was the, was the agent of, of grace uh, in their lives. So later on we'll have a response time and that's one thing to think about. Is there a place where you feel or where you wonder if you are caught as we all probably are somewhere in sort of worldly ways, that the world's ways of thinking are the places where you're resenting weakness in yourself or in others. Are you sort of fantasizing about power, about promotion or recognition or money and how that'll make everything better some way in the future? Is there a Ted Lasso in your life right now? I once spent a summer in a Christian community. Uh, it was very wonderful and early on, it's really moving actually, but I'm talking about the, um, we were, all, we were all having this great time, and there was this great community feel, except for one person, a couple of weeks in, who just didn't seem to quite get it, who kind of wasn't so fun, had a lot of anxiety, and it was just, everything was being made more complicated and sort of, this, it, was, it was a lot, it didn't seem like this person fit. And then we were reading this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer about Christian community life, and he said, in every community there will be someone who seems like they don't fit, and who you wish weren't there. It's not you. <laughs> um, and that every, every community will have such a person, and it is, that person is Jesus. It is through that person that God is at work in the community and will enter that community. We were all like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was pretty on the nose, honestly. Um, and so uh, we kind of realized that, that the way to, to deal with what seemed like a problem person was to accept that, to make the whole community turn around that person, to make them the, the place where God, to look to, to them to be God for us. In some way, and something about that dynamic, it really changed. It made us, rather than thinking the way the world thinks, you know, we just need the cool people, you know, or the people who, uh, who get it, um, to think that, well, what if God is here? What if God is actually active? If that's the case, then he can do something much more wonderful, and precisely by including the person who uh, we thought should not be included. Uh, I've never forgotten it, and it was ended up being so amazing that summer. I'll tell you about it sometime. So that's the first uh, takeaway. But the second is the you know, calling us to account for our worldly thinking. The second is uh, is good news. It's um, the message of the cross, as I've described it, as Paul describes it, is good news for us, where we are weak and where we are broken and where we are guilty. Specifically, it, is, uh, it tells us that God is coming to us in the places that we don't like or that we hide. There are parts of ourselves that we keep hidden. 
there are things that we're about ourselves we're afraid to expose, or there's, there are things about ourselves we just don't like. And the message of the cross means that God is most likely to be working precisely in that place, that place where you don't want him to be working, or you don't expect him to be working. That is the, the, the reversal of values. So if you want to know where he's working in your life right now, look where you're failing. Where are you failing right now in something? That's probably where you're going to find God's work today. Or look to the place where you feel least deserving of love and support. That is the place where you will find Jesus looking back. And if you look to your talent and your strength, you will just be crushed. So it is our weaknesses and our flaws that God uses, not our strengths. And I think if you look at the pattern of your life, I mean, isn't it true? All the best parts of you, say you're any time you feel like you really have real love and compassion, you have effective ministry maybe, or just a sense that you can really help someone, how often does that come out of your pain? That comes out of the fact that actually this, I relate to this, I understand because of my weakness. It's your weakness that brings, uh, that connects you with people, not your strength. I want to close with, uh, by just sharing a few lines from a short play that I think communicates what I'm trying to say better than I can. The play is called, uh, I'd be very impressed if any of you have heard of it, unless uh, Dr. Linebaugh's around, he knows about it. Um, the Angel That Troubled the Waters by American playwright Thornton Wilder. He wrote Our Town, a few other things. Um, it's a very short, it's like a four-page play. The scene is the Pool of Bethsaida. If you remember in John's Gospel, chapter 5, the Pool of Bethsaida is a place where the sick gather around in hopes that the water will be stirred, and if they get in the pool when the water is stirred, they'll be healed. So that's the scene, though it's not the gospel scene that's being described in this play. So a man comes, all these sort of sick people lying around waiting for the water to be stirred. And a man comes in, he's called the newcomer. And he has some nameless wound that we're not, is not explained to us. And we learn somehow that he's a, he's a physician, that's his job, he, he, he helps people. Um, but he has this wound and he's come. And finally the water stirs and he gets up and is about to go in and suddenly an angel appears. And the angel says, Draw back, physician. This moment is not for you. The healing is not for you. The newcomer says, angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. The angel says, healing is not for you. The newcomer, thinking that the angel doesn't understand, because he looks whole, he looks like he's got it together, he looks like he's, maybe doesn't, he's worried the angel doesn't realize that he needs healing. He says, surely, surely the angels are wise. Surely, O oh prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings are caught. The sin into which all my endeavors sink, half performed, cannot be concealed from you. Do you not see this flaw in my heart? Must I drag my shame, prince and singer, all my days more bowed than my neighbor? And it says the angel stands for a moment in silence and says this, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. This is the message of the cross. This is the thing that you think is the problem, is 
God's, the place where God is working. So don't be afraid of being a wounded soldier. To the world, this may seem like foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message of the cross. We ask that you help us to hear it, to understand it, to know it, to see the freedom in it. And we thank you that you have chosen to work this way. Uh, And we ask for your presence to come among us and minister to us now, especially where we are wounded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.